Well, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter, the book of 2 Peter, our scripture reading will come from 2 Peter chapter 3. It's near the end of the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 3, we will be reading from verses 3 through 18. We have uh, just completed the study of the book of 2 Corinthians after the book of 1 Corinthians. And we have a, a little respite here as we look at a particular topic that I thought would be very relevant, especially in our day and age and our time, especially with all that has been happening in our world from the economic crisis to the Arab Spring to the hurricane that has hit the eastern seaboard. We look at the world in light, not of the changing situation as much as we do of the unchanging promise of Christ's return. Second Peter chapter 3 verses 3 through 18. The Apostle Peter writes, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep and all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, It escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. That with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of Scripture to their own destruction. 
You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Well, Father, our hearts cry out, Maranatha, O Lord, come. Open the eyes of our heart, we might see great and mighty things from thy word. In Jesus' name, amen. This past week, undoubtedly, you have heard the news, watched the news, read the news of the destruction of Hurricane Sandy on the eastern seaboard. It was a storm like no other, shut down our nation's capital, caused the city that never sleeps to be knocked out of power and millions of people were affected when the power went out and many lost their homes. Thousands of homes were destroyed, families were uprooted, and tens of billions of dollars in damage rivaling the most expensive disaster in our nation's history and certainly the most expensive storm in our generation. In the days that led up to the storm, if you were watching and reading carefully, you would have heard many of the reports that would come out, the forecast models that were being run, the computer simulations of where Hurricane Sandy would make landfall and the dire warnings of a superstorm or the perfect storm that would come. Mandatory evacuations were implemented as soon as Sandy became much closer to landfall. It would take some businesses that would normally take weeks to wrap up their operations and give them only a few days to board up and prepare. And when the hurricane came ashore just last week, many found that the predictions that were made came true. Cities and communities along the East Coast and even inland faced waters that they had never seen before or snowfall early on. People lost their homes, lost their pets, and tragically, many had lost their lives. Now, the forecast was there. The warnings were hard to miss. The entire country was watching, but few, there were a few who decided they wanted to ignore all of the warnings that were given. Now, the same could be said about many disasters in the world, whether it's a fire alarm or tsunami alarm or flashing lights or news bulletins or government announcements. There will always be those that refuse to listen. And the rationale is everything will be okay. We read, we weathered the last one. Everything will be fine as it always has been. And tragically, a number lost their lives. The same could be said the truism of the warnings that are repeatedly given to us as well in the Bible. People back in biblical times. When Jesus first came, they were unprepared, not knowing 
oblivious to the fact that the Savior was born. Oblivious to the fact that God had spoken through his Son. And blinded like the religious leaders of that day. The same is true today. During our time when the grace of God has been extended to us in his patience that people would come to know Christ, many still choose to live the way that they want to live without Christ, without God, without a relationship with him. But since we know, we here know Christ is coming, there are things that God expects of you and of I. And so this morning as we look at various passages of the text. We look at the time of salvation. The time for salvation is now. It is today. We look at the time of Christ's return, which is imminent at any time. And we look at the time that is left for you and I as we live here on this earth in the shortness of time that there is that we might redeem the time for the glory of God in godly living. So as we look at the time for salvation, we turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. If you flip in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, we look at an incident in which Christ is confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees in a debate over a sign from heaven. The time of salvation is now. Matthew 16, verses 1 through 4. The text reads, as Matthew writes, The Pharisees and Sadducees came up, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red. And threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and the sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. When Jesus came, these religious leaders came to test him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were the religious leaders of the day. They often were antagonistic towards Jesus, constantly attacking him, attempting to trip him up and to undermine him. They sought to test him, to discredit him, to trap him. They were no friends of Jesus. There were two groups that were here, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the aristocrats. They were the wealthy, elite religious leaders. They held the positions within Jewish society of the high priest and the chief priests. They were the ones who had the lucrative business of money changing at the temple. They were the ones who held the stores of animals that would be sold to the people. At an inflated rate that they might garner money for themselves. They were the ones who didn't care about the rabbinic tradition. They cared about making money. They didn't care. They were the religious liberals who didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in immortality. And they didn't believe in anything that was supernatural. They were 
happy with the position that they had as secular materialists. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they were the conservative fundamentalists known for their strict legalism. They were the ones who were the separatists who held that rabbinic tradition. The things that the rabbis taught were equal in authority to the scriptures. They were zealous in their protection of Judaism, especially against the Hellenization that had been brought in by Antiochus Epiphanes. The Pharisees were from the working class folks who were zealous for their traditions. They often had another means to bring in income for them. They believed in the supernatural, but they also were very antagonistic towards Christ. It was them and the, and the scribes who had come in chapter 12 of the book of Matthew to accuse Jesus who was doing these miracles. And they said that he is doing it by the power of Satan. They were big into signs and they wanted a sign from Jesus, a sign on demand. But he replied to them in verse 2 saying, When it's evening, you'll say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. In the morning, there'll be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. There's an old sailor saying that goes, Red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning, sailor's warning. Because you see, if there was a red sky at night, those who were mariners, those who were sailors knew that the next day would be Placid and a good sailing day without a storm. But if the sky was red in the morning, there would be a storm that would be impending. And the essence of what Jesus was saying was, you are so adept at knowing what the weather is going to be. You can discern what the weather is going to be just by looking at the sky and you know what's going to happen. You may not be sailors, but you cannot even tell what the signs of the time are. The only sign that you're going to get, he says, is the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah is in the stomach of the fish, so too the Son of Man, Christ, was going to be in the grave and was going to be resurrected from the dead. When Jesus speaks of the signs of the times, it may be reference to all of the signs that were given as well, validating him as the Messiah. But the religious leaders, they were blinded. They were blinded by their own sin to the fact that Christ was the Savior. And that Christ had come and he had extended an invitation to everyone. And he had said to them in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light says to them, I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. That yoke that he was talking about was the yoke that he would alleviate from the people, not of their personal problems, but of the yoke of the legalism that the religious leaders had placed upon them. So tiring and so weary was it to the people that they had to do all of these things. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees had laid on their shoulders if you wanted to be saved and be right with God. There was all of these things that you had to do. And Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Today that invitation is still to us. That there are many things people are weighed down by. Why? Because they do not know the Savior. Who wants to take that yoke off of you and give you rest for your soul. There are plenty of people today. Plenty of people today who can tell many things. They can tell the weather weeks in advance. They can tell a forecast for perhaps the economic situation of a business. They can tell you what the educational trends are. If you want to know what colors are in, what fashions are out, there are people who can tell you what the trends are in that. They can tell you trends in architecture, forecasts, political or military patterns or whatever it may be. Plenty of people who know Many of those things, but when it comes to what Jesus said to them, the signs of the times, many of them have no clue. The one thing that the Pharisees had missed, the one thing that the Sadducees had missed, had been the same thing people miss today. And it is the same thing that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 2. When he says, behold, now... Is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Since Christ came and died on the cross for your sins and for mine. Two thousand years ago, today is the day to receive Christ. I had a friend who said to me, you know, uh, I can receive Christ right before I die and still go to heaven. Isn't that right? And I said, yes, that's right. But the problem is you don't know when you're going to die. You can say to yourself, well, you know what? I'm going to get my immunizations a week before I get sick. Or I'm going to buy my earthquake insurance. It's so expensive the day before the earthquake happens. Or I'm going to do whatever it may be right before the time. But the problem is you don't know when that time is going to come. And Christ says today is the day of salvation. As Hebrews chapter 4 verse 6 says, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them, failed to enter because of disobedience he again fixes a certain day today saying through David after so long a time just as has been before today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts the time to be saved the time to have a relationship with God is today And the warning is, do not harden your hearts. In big headlines, it's written for all to hear. Hear that the day of salvation is now. Because we don't know when Jesus will return. No one knows that time. That leads us to knowing the second point. The time of Christ's return is imminent. Is imminent. Critics of Christians will say, well, Jesus hasn't come back for 2,000 years and he won't come back. As we read in our text today in the book of Second Peter, liberal Christians will say, look, he's just speaking metaphorically. He's already returned. The spirit of Christ has returned. 
This is the life that there all is. There's nothing to be waiting for. Jesus said, though, in John 14, these words of comfort. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. When Christ left, he went to prepare a place for us, and he is promised to return. People want to know what the future holds. People want to know when Christ will come again. But Mark 13, Jesus himself says, But of that day and of that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, nor the Father, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, for you do not know when the time will come. You do not know when the time will come. When Christ will return. And the Bible says no one knows. But there have been plenty of sensationalists who have come by and tried to predict the future. Whether it's last year with Harold Camping. Or whether it's the Jehovah Witnesses or the Mormons who have set many dates by which they said Christ is going to come on this day. But Jesus says no one knows the day nor the hour when Christ will come. That we do know. As Paul writes. That the day of the Lord will be like a thief in the night. Whereas Peter writes that the end of all things is near. Multiple warnings to us. Multiple times when the scriptures say Christ is coming. Don't be taken off guard. Be alert. Be watchful. Be waiting. Be standing by. Watch therefore. Jesus says, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, Matthew 24, or the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him or watch. Therefore, for, you know, neither did the day nor the hour, the sheer force of the number of passages that call to the believer to be watchful, to be waiting, to be expectant that Christ is coming. Speaks loudly to us. The return of Christ, even in the minds of the apostles, was imminent in their mind's eye. If you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The text in 1 Thessalonians and when Paul writes to them. Verses 13 through 17. Paul speaks of Christ's coming. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Christ. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise 
first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord and therefore comfort one another with these words. It is a belief that Christ could come at any moment to take us home. That is called the imminency of Christ. The doctrine of the imminency of Christ. That his return could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. It could be next year. Some people argue, well, aren't there going to be signs? Aren't there going to be signs that must come before Jesus comes again? And he can't possibly come until these particular signs are fulfilled. What about preaching the gospel to all nations and the great tribulation or the false prophet or signs in heaven? How about the coming of the Son of Man, etc.? How do we reconcile that idea of the coming of Christ? And the answer, I don't believe, is too difficult. Many of the general signs of wars and rumors of wars or famine either have been or are being fulfilled even in our time. Have been or even being fulfilled in our time. I mean, people even ask me, do you think we live in the last days? Of course I think we live in the last days. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, it tells us, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. For this we know it is the last hour, unquote. In other words, ever, ever since the time that Christ died on the cross and arose from the dead, it has been the last hour or the last days. And as I read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 about the rapture of his believers, of his children, Paul wrote, believing that he himself would possibly be in that generation. It was in the sense that he himself might not even see death, that Christ might come even during his lifetime. And so now, 2,000 years later, We're 2,000 years closer to Christ's return. Some of those signs that people will say. Secondly, though, references to the Olivet Discourse. The fifth discourse of Christ in the book of Matthew. The longest answer that Jesus gave to a question that the disciples asked about how they would know when Christ is coming again. And it is in reference to his second coming when he comes again to set up his kingdom here in the millennial kingdom that will be here on earth. But when will Christ come for those who are currently his? He will come at any moment. And so I think it's foolish as well and a mistake to dismiss the parables of Matthew 24 and 25 saying, well, those don't relate to us because they relate to the signs that will come specifically some of them before the millennial kingdom is set up. No, the principle is still the same, that Jesus could come at any time to take us to be with him, to be ready, to be watching, to be waiting At an unexpected hour when Christ could come at any time. 
The day of salvation is today. Christ could come at any time. And the time that is remaining for you who are believers in Him, we are to live godly lives. To live godly lives as we read in our text today. So how are we to live? Knowing that Christ could come today, tomorrow, whatever it may be. I'll tell you, a lot of people on the East Coast... They lived differently knowing that the hurricane was coming. Second Peter chapter 3, we look back at that passage of verses 10 through 12. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. First thing that he points out that we are to live in holiness and godliness. Verse 10, since all these things are to be destroyed, the heavens and the earth will be destroyed by fire. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Soon the Lord will come. And for the non-Christian, the person who has never received Christ, the person who does not know God, it is a very foreboding and terrifying day of destruction and judgment for them. But for the Christian, it is a day of blessing, a day of joy. The day of the Lord is coming. What sort of people translate uniquely? It translates it literally as how astonishingly excellent you ought to be. Imagine that, if that was written right there. How astonishingly excellent are you to live? The time to get our act together as a believer in Christ, the time to live a godly life, the time to live in obedience as God has called us to, is today. It is today. Never to say, well, you know what, I'm in... I'm in school right now. I'm going to wait until I finish my my exams. And then I'm going to finish. And I'm going to get right with God. Then I'll go back to church. Or when I've settled down, work is so busy right now. And then the kids make life so busy for me. Time just flies by. And then I'm too old. I'm set in my ways. No. The time to live a godly life, to be a testimony and have an impact on the world is today. As Colossians 1.10 tells us, so that you will walk in a manner, in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in good works, and increasing in the knowledge of God. You and I have been called by God to walk in a manner of of, of God's calling for us as children of God, as Ephesians tell us, as ambassadors of the King, as Corinthians would tell us, to be separated from the world, to shine like stars in a world that needs us, not to be ashamed of the gospel, to take a stand for what is right and not to hide the fact that we are Christians Not to love the world or the things of the world. We are to live holy lives. Knowing that Christ can come tomorrow. Secondly, we're to live expectantly. Verse 12. To live expectantly. Verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. The idea behind looking for and hastening the day has the idea of expectant anticipation. Just as we were glued to the news of what would happen. Or just as people, millions, were watching TV on Tuesday, trying to determine who is going to be our next president. 
And suddenly all orientation of life changed for many people on the East Coast. Their money was spent on the necessities of life, of food and water, of gasoline, etc. There's that expectancy because your attention has now been turned to the most urgent thing. And if we do not realize that Jesus could come at any time, that expectancy, well, life is going to be what? Presumably the same as yesterday. A few weeks ago, I was trying to board a plane by flying standby. And I'll tell you, I was constantly watching. They got this reader board. How many seats there are on the plane? How many are available? How many have been sold? And I was in line. You know, they have your name up there. And you would look, man, am I going to be on or am I not going to be on? I mean, the name of the game is you better listen to your name being called because if you snooze, you lose. You wait for the next plane. I was up and ready when they called my name first in line. Hi, I'm Lum. (laughs) Life is short. And our orientation is to be that of looking forward in expectancy to Christ's coming. For our citizenship is where? It's not here. Our citizenship, Philippians 3.20, is in heaven. For which we what? Eagerly, it says, wait for the Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, what do you think? Are you eager to have Christ come? Are you really hoping? Are you really desiring that Christ would come? Is that what you really want? Or would you say, I'm not ready yet. I've got to get my life together. That day is today. To get your life together. Thirdly, we're called, verse 14, to be at peace. To be at peace. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him, by him in peace. Now, this could mean that one has peace with God. It could mean that one has peace with others. But I think in particular, this particular peace that is here doesn't refer to peace with God or one another as such, but peace that reigns in your heart. That you're at peace with whatever happens in life. There was a missionary newsletter that came out that Ron and Joke Jones wrote. They're ministering in the Middle East. They're part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. They were in Israel and they wrote this, quote, The result of the fighting and killing has left a profound sense of discouragement that hovers over the country. Several times we have come into closer contact with this conflict than our comfort zones allow. Yesterday a friend said she was watching a shepherd caring for his flock near the area where guns are fired. Every time the shots rang out, the sheep scattered in fright. The shepherd touched each of them with his staff and spoke calmly to them. And the sheep settled down because they trusted the shepherd. Then another shot sounded and the same routine happened. Each time the sheep needed the shepherd to orient them again and to reassure them they were safe. And see, we are like that sheep, often alarmed by things that would happen, often frantic, often anxious, worried or desperate often fearful of whatever might happen at every single shot that comes across that is unexpected. And the question is, do we trust in the Savior? 
will touch us and remind us that He is there. That He is there. That we can say, I shall not want because the Lord is my shepherd. The fourth thing that we are to do in living in light of Christ's coming Not only to live in holiness, not only to live in expectancy, not only to live in peace, but to live pure lives. It says in verse 14, spotless and blameless. Spotless and blameless. If you've ever been in other parts of the world, you know, you know that you've perhaps seen these river inlets or these little harbors or some parts of the world that I've been in. Little places where people park their boats. And there's no outflow. Some of these places have been filthy. The water is filthy green. It is polluted. And garbage covers the surface. It is murky and has a putrid smell. And it really defiles the senses when you even think about what that water would be like. But I've been in weather water as well. Swimming off the coast of Australia and the Great Barrier Reefs, it is pristine, it is clean, and you feel like you're just swimming in a tropical aquarium, finding Nemo, you know? (laughs) Given the choice between the two, which would you rather be in? God has rescued us from the pollution of an inlet, and yet oftentimes people want to return there. The stench of the world is polluted and foul. And we are to be people who are spotless, who are blameless, who are clean, who are pure. Apart from the pollution this world casts at us. We're called to be pure in heart, to be pure in mind, to be pure in the things that we do. And today, one of the mainstream things of impurity comes through the media comes through the internet, affecting men and women and children. I read just last week that nine of ten kids, nine of ten kids between ages eight and sixteen have been exposed to pornography online, according to the U.S. Justice Department. Furthermore, 47 percent Nearly half of school-aged children receive pornographic spam on a daily basis, reports the software company Semantic. They make Norton. And representatives from the pornography industry told Congress's COPA, which stands for the Child Online Protection Act Commission, that as many as 20 to 30 percent of the visitors to some pornographic websites are children. We're to protect the purity of our lives and the purity of our children's lives. Whether it's purity online or material on movies or the music that is read or the books or the magazines or the advertisements. There is always something from the world that is trying to blotch the heart, that blinds the eyes, that subdues the joy and steals the life. Away from what a Christian is to live. In light of Christ's coming, how would He come and see you? Would He come and find you with clean hands and a pure heart? Lastly, we are to be discerning. Verse 15. We are to be discerning. 
Verse 17, it says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled, unprincipled men, and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the things that is so sad today is that many people, many people are undiscerning. Just as we learned this morning, how many cults are so much more adept at articulating their beliefs, so much more adept at apologetics, being able to disarm the average Christian, so much more trained. Why? Because people, Christians, many of them do not know and cannot discern truth from the Word of God. Little desire do they have for studying and digging deep into the things of God. To understand that which is theologically and doctrinally sound. To be able to exposit and understand and study the Word of God for themselves. And when you don't know the Word of God, you don't have strong convictions that are based upon the Word of God, then you're what? Apt to sway to and fro, blown about, as Ephesians 4.14 will say, blown about by every wind of doctrine. In the book Reckless Faith, the author writes, It is fashionable today to characterize anyone who is concerned with biblical doctrine as pharisaical. The biblical condemnation of the Pharisees' legalism has been misread as a denunciation of doctrinal precision. And love of the truth has often been judged inherently legalistic. But love for truth is not the same as legalism. The fact that it has been portrayed that way has sabotaged the very thing The church so desperately needs today. Too many Christians are content to gaze nonchalantly at the surface of scriptural truth without plunging any deeper. They often justify their shallow indifference as a refusal to be legalistic. Conversely, they miss, they dismiss as pharisaical, narrow-mindedness, any attempt to declare the truth authoritatively. Doctrine divides. Therefore, any concern for doctrinal matters is commonly seen as unchristian. People concerned with discernment and sound doctrine are often accused of fostering a pharisaical, divisive attitude. Unquote. That is so sad. Because doctrinal discernment keeps us from being sucked into every trend, every fashion or theological fad that comes into the church. Discernment is gained, though, through diligent study and understanding the Word of God. But many people are content with some sort of cursory understanding of the Bible. Content with not digging deep. Not spending time trying to understand why was it that people gave their lives that I could hold a Bible in my hand over the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Why were people willing to give their life for that? Little care. Some people care less about knowing and understanding 
And when they care less, they make themselves susceptible to the disease of falsehood that so easily comes into the life of the believer. So the time we have that we have been given on this earth, the time for salvation is now. Christ has spoken and He has invited every person to come to Him to be saved. The time is imminent that He could come. Those who know Him are to live in holiness. To live with expectancy. To live with peace. Knowing that God is our shepherd. Live in purity and live with discernment. So many people live instead in hedonism. Living for the day. Living for self. Living for pleasure. Living for the things that the money will buy. Living for achievements. Living for this world. Rather than living for God. And Peter encourages us here, as you know and you see the time coming, and you know that this world will disappear and will be burned away along with the heavens, and they will be gone. What are we living for? The scriptures encourage us to encourage one another, and all the more not to give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but encouraging one another as we see the day drawing near. So when Jesus comes, if he were to come this afternoon, what kind of a person would he find where you're at? What kind of a heart would he find? Would he find a pure heart, a clean heart, a heart that yearns after him, a heart that says like Psalm 27, 4, one thing I desire of the Lord, that which I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord and inquire of him. When Jesus comes, will he be proud of you? Will he be proud of how you have used your time, how you've spent your energy, how you've invested in what he has entrusted to you? Or will he find your life chasing after things, presuming that you'll live another day, another week, another year? I hope that when he comes, he will find you and find you to be a faithful servant. And that you in your heart can truly say, Maranatha, O Lord, come. One who testifies of these things, meaning Christ in Revelation 22, says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how great you are. How the promise of your Son excites us. O Father... I look forward to your coming. And I pray, Father, for every heart that is here. As we enter soon into the time of communion, O oh God, we pray, God, that you would look into each and every heart, for it is fully revealed to you. You see, O oh God, through our facade. And we desire, O oh God, to be right before you. In Jesus' name, amen.